Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Computer science skills are in high demand, and teaching children from a young age has become a priority for many countries. As computer science is becoming part of the core curriculum and equipping more children with computer science skills a priority, there are several challenges that emerge with respect to equity and participation. To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Laura Lark, a postdoctoral associate and teaching fellow at the MIT Teaching Systems Lab and an affiliate of Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, as well as an associate editor at Policy and Internet. Laura is a qualitative researcher and social theorist interested in equity and power in K-12 computer science education. She was previously a postdoctoral researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute and completed her PhD and MSc in the University of Oxford's Learning and New Technologies Research Group. Currently, Laura is working on two National Science Foundation-funded projects at MIT, both focused on broadening participation and success in K-12 computer science education, and she is also co-teaching the Learning, Media, and Technology Seminar at MIT. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me today. To start off, can you tell me about your research and what the computer science education landscape looks like at the moment? Sure. So computer science education is sort of a rapidly expanding movement, I would say, both in the U.S. and the U.K., as well as really in a lot of countries across the world. Um, There was a big push around the beginning of 2016 with President Obama putting several million dollars into a CS for All fund that was being used there, as well as in 2014 in the U.K. in England, they added computing to the national curriculum. And since then, it's really just gained um, speed, but there's also been a lot of uh, piecemeal approach, I'd say. And that's where we're, we're starting to get into difficulty. So a lot of places are starting to adopt computer science, say in certain states or certain regions or certain school types, but not everyone's necessarily having access. So my research is really focused on how do we make sure everyone has access to learn these important digital skills in a way that's relevant to them um, by trained high quality teachers with experience and knowledge of how to teach them. So at MIT, I'm focused on two different National Science Foundation funded projects, as you said, working on how we scale up teacher education, both for pre-service teachers, people who are learning how to be a computer science teacher for the first time, Mm -hmm. as well as in-service teachers. And that includes both computer science teachers and teachers in other subjects who want to start including computer science uh, as an element in what they're teaching. And really what we found one of the best ways to scale up is by using digital simulations. They're Mm -hmm. cheap, they're easily accessible to anyone who has an internet connection and a laptop or a tablet. And some of these even work on smartphones. And so we're, we're partnering with teacher educators to put together these simulations uh, with a particular focus on equity. So how do we get students from the, the broadest sort of demographic set involved in computer science? So uh, I think a question that would pop into a lot of people's minds, and certainly 
a while ago when we talked about it, it popped into mind is what does that simulation look like? I mean, you think about simulation in terms of medical training and flying an airplane type of training, but what does a virtual simulation look like for a teacher? Right. And really medical training, I think, is where we, we base our initial knowledge in what is a good simulation for training. We even specifically call them digital clinical simulations, what we're working on at the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. So you, you go all the way back to in-person simulations, just like a doctor or let's say a medical student is learning how to work with a patient who's role played by an actor you do get those kinds of case study experiences in traditional teacher training programs where there's people pretending to be students, although that could be difficult if it's an adult actor uh, and the, the teacher, pre-service teacher interacts with them. We also have sort of at the far end of technical digital simulations, programs such as one's called Mersion. It's a VR experience. Um, you and other people who are wearing virtual reality headsets enter a virtual classroom together and that still has an actor on the other end who's wearing a headset pretending to be uh, say another teacher or a student in your classroom and you interact with them in that space. However, that's quite expensive both because it requires someone who's skilled or at least has a script to portray the other actors and not everyone can afford a virtual headset. So what we're focusing on is a very I'd say pretty low tech version. It's an online platform. We have two at the moment that we've developed and there are others out there. One's called Teacher Moments and one's called ELK, Eliciting Learner Knowledge is what the acronym's for. And those are really focused on text as well as some really basic visual aids such as pictures or short video clips. Mm -hmm. So you're going through different stages of a simulation. There might be a couple text slides at the beginning that introduce a context. You know, you're a teacher in this classroom, you've had these issues. Then you have a couple slides where maybe there's a video of someone portraying a student saying something or doing something, or it might be text-based. And then you record your response, what you do in the moment. And then later there are reflection questions. So this is something that can be available 24 seven. You don't necessarily have to film anything. You can just put a text-based experience in. It's really pretty low effort, high scalability approach to using simulations and teacher training. Well, that sounds really interesting and really, really useful in being able to do that. Traditionally, teachers would just go straight into the classroom when they're going through their teacher education and uh, having this type of training where you can practice before you actually have real students in front of you is is incredibly useful. This is actually a really huge issue right now with teachers, uh, especially pre-service teachers during COVID-19 pandemic, the closure of schools or the move to online or just increased restrictions on who can access classrooms for safety reasons. And so, like you said, traditionally, a pre-service teacher who's going through a college program learning how to be a teacher for the first time, they would go and student teach. Mm. But that's not safe now. In a lot of places, that's not an option. So what kind of practical experience are they going to get at all? Is it just going to be with other pre-service teachers guessing or trying to remember what it was like to be in this situation, you know, emulating it? Mm -hmm. Really, we need additional opportunities for practice. Yes, absolutely. That's huge. During my teacher training, when I went into the classroom, I mean, I, you just encounter things that you didn't expect. And it's a lot more challenging than you ever thought. So having these types of simulations, and you're right. And these times you can't go in and have those traditional practice scenarios in the classroom. So that's hugely useful. Um, so what do you think are the main challenges of integrating a good computer science curriculum 
in schools around the world. This is becoming more and more standard, but there aren't necessarily that many computer scientists and they're not necessarily the ones teaching. So how do you introduce a good curriculum? Yeah, so like I said, there's this huge issue with it being a piecemeal approach. Um, it, since it, it's in many ways a novel subject, not necessarily novel to the 2010s or 2020s, but it is novel for the past 30, mm -hmm. 40 years. Um, these, these concepts and certainly these technologies are, are pretty um, recent, past five to 10 years. And so we, we haven't really had this experience, I think, um, as sort of a collective nation or as, as a world, really, of having to rapidly add a new curriculum. So there, there's been a big learning curve. A big part of it, like I said, is, yeah, the piecemeal approach. So who's teaching it, who's required to teach it, who's required to take it, that's still being negotiated in a lot of places. For example, in the U.S., each state has its own um, control over its local educational systems and not every state requires computer science. In the state I'm located in Massachusetts, they have a digital literacy computer science DLCS requirement, which is fantastic. But that means that in some schools, you may only have access to a digital literacy course, not computer science. So a lot of it's about access. I think a really useful framework for thinking about this, it's called the Kate framework. It was developed mm -hmm. by Carol Fletcher and Jace Warner at University of Texas at Austin. I've been using it a lot in my own work because as we're getting a wider adoption, we have to really look beyond just, is there a computer science class? It's, it's also about the experience. So CAPE stands for capacity, access, participation, and experience. So we're thinking not just about the capacity, is there a teacher there who's able to offer it, who's skilled, who's maybe licensed in that area, and that's a huge issue. A lot of states don't even have licensing, even if they do, like you said, how do you get a computer scientist to teach or how do you get a teacher to become a computer scientist, especially the huge disparity in pay between being a computer scientist and a teacher mm -hmm. in most areas. Then there's access. So even if there is a computer science class in the classroom, or sorry, in the school, are all students able to take that? Is there a prerequisite, like a certain achievement level in math or in science before you're allowed to access that, which would mm -hmm. limit students who maybe struggle a bit with traditional math classes, but might do really well in computer science. Or it might be offered at the same time, say, when students uh, with additional needs are pulled out of class to receive assistance and additional support during that time. Hmm. And we've got participation. So that's who's choosing to enroll, especially if it's not a requirement, which is true in most places, who's going out of their way to say, yeah, computer science, that's something that's for me. That's something I'm interested in and I would fit in well. And that's where we see, especially starting in middle school and high school, um, a huge gap between male and female students who feel like that's a place for them um, and is part of one of the contributors to the low number of female students enrolling. And then lastly is experience. Once they get in the classroom, is it a positive experience? Do the students feel like they fit in? Um, is it relevant to what their interests are? Are they treated well by other students, by their teachers, and that will determine whether they do well in the classroom, as well as whether they'll take another course and even consider computer science as a career for them. So just mm -hmm. taking a one-off CS course that you fail is not very helpful. It really needs to be a positive experience way to get to the classroom. Um, and that's, those are obviously a lot of steps. And in most places, we haven't really 
been able to address each of those four steps yet. No, and probably a big impact on all of those is the fact that most people don't fully understand what computer science education is or what computer science is, really. And I would imagine that in itself would impact both students choosing it or teachers, the way they teach it or the way they integrate. Have you found that that kind of mystery around or maybe misconceptions around what computer science is that impacts a lot of that? Absolutely. Uh, Because there's such a shortage of trained computer science teachers, really most of the time what you're doing as a computer science education advocate is trying to get non-computer science teachers to learn a bit of CS and integrate it into their own course, whether that be an IT class or Mm -hmm. maybe a science class or maybe a writing class. Mm -hmm. And computer science can be quite intimidating. People think of themselves maybe not as technical people especially if they didn't go into a STEM subject for whatever reason, they may not see that as a skill set that they have. And unfortunately, if you're of the mindset that you have maybe an inherent ability to be a STEM type person, you may Mm -hmm. struggle to see all of your students as able to do well in computer science. That's an attitude I encountered some of my own research when I was in England. Um, Although you see it across the board was that some teachers believed that particular students have an inherent ability to do well at computer science and by definition some did not and did not necessarily try to get everyone engaged in that subject. So there's definitely a lot of issues around that to unpack. You said that equity is the key challenge in having an effective CS education program. So what are some examples of there not being equity in a CS program and the way it is put into practice? Right. It's a difficult question. And if it were easy to answer, we hopefully would have fixed it by now. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the ways that we learn about inequity, what causes inequity is by discovering inequitable outcomes. So we see that in the US, for example, um, there are AP courses, which are often a sort of signal for future computer, uh, sorry, future college success because they count as college credits. So there are two AP computer science courses and they have exams and we see that the students who take the exams and succeed at the exams are predominantly white Asian males. Mm -hmm. And it's great that those groups are doing well, but it it shows that everyone else is doing poorly. And Mm -hmm. so we then have to backtrack from there and say, well, why? Why are they doing poorly? And some of it's tied into other ongoing issues of educational inequality, social inequality in the United States in this particular instance. A lot of it has to do with where computer science is offered. So I'm thinking again of the Massachusetts context, um, the, the higher percentage a high school is made up of students from historically underrepresented backgrounds, the less likely are they are to offer a computer science course. Hmm. That's an explanation for why they didn't enroll in AP computer science and take the exam. But then getting to the next stage and saying, well, why aren't these schools offering these courses and other schools with different demographics are, that's not as easy to answer perhaps. Um, There are lots of complicating factors that go into why different schools offer what they do. And I, I think in most cases, educators are doing the best they can for their circumstances. And so it, it takes kind of a gentle 
requires a gentle approach to go into those situations and say, oh, we really think you should offer computer science as well. And these are the reasons why. Um, and a lot of it is then finding funding and finding the technical support that these schools need to overcome whatever challenges have kept mm -hmm. them from offering computer science so that going forward they can despite all of the challenges they face. What do you think is the one or the top reasons why some a school would say we're not offering it? It's not seen as a high priority subject compared to other other subjects. Some of that will be tied to testing. Usually okay. state testing is focused on English and on math, maybe also on science or a few other subjects. Computer science usually isn't included. And that's not just teachers saying tests are more important than, than learning. Obviously, mm. that's not, teachers don't go into the profession to teach the test, but there are usually links between how schools are treated by the state or the funding they receive and test scores. So there's a big motivator there. What would you tell that school that doesn't have computer science and is facing all of these challenges, right? Because funding is one thing that you can't really advise too much necessarily. Yeah, I don't have a pot of several million dollars to hand yes. out. So then what do you do instead and respect the informed choices and autonomy of these school Absolutely. leaders and teachers who've made these difficult decisions? In these situations, and it's difficult because you don't want to suggest a sort of weak solution that's unjust in itself by not being as good an offering as what you get maybe in a, a better funded school. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes there are opportunities to partner with neighboring schools, to have after school programs perhaps funded by nonprofit organizations, to possibly co-enroll your students in AP courses in neighboring schools. If there are schools within your district that are perhaps a bit better funded or neighboring districts. Uh, there's also a move in some areas, and this is an idea that's been funded by the National Science Foundation as well, around concurrent enrollment in community college courses. So if you're a high school student who might do well in AP CSA class, then perhaps you'd also do okay in a first year, sort of a freshman computer science course at your community college. So the, it, the reason why I think it hasn't been easily solved is because it's it's not going to be easily solvable. It's going to be one of these kind of additional free partnerships that will supplement what the schools at this time can afford logistically and financially to offer. Mm. That's a good point, though, about kind of thinking outside of the traditional school framework on how to be able to make this happen, because there are a lot of challenges for sure. But what I hear you saying is that a lot of times partnerships with other schools, colleges, uh, companies can actually bring down some of those, uh, some of those hurdles. So that's definitely something good to consider. How does the high tech industry culture, for example, the Silicon Valley culture, impact CS education? Yeah, I think the sort of sexiness of the Silicon Valley has played a role in the interest and excitement in computer science. And CS for all, which in a sense is helpful, though I, I think there are some pretty obvious problems with a lot of the culture um, that's defined by this idea of Silicon Valley culture. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of involvement in private tech companies uh, in the creation of policy. We saw that as, especially in England with the creation of their computing policy. A lot of 
the writing of the policy documents themselves was handed over to some small industry focused organizations. Um, There's a lot of influence by big private tech companies. I think the, the education minister at the time, Michael Gove, even sort of said, we've brought about this computing curriculum with the help of Facebook and Google, as well as some of our homegrown computer scientists. So there's, there's a pretty open acknowledgement of the partnership between public institutions, governments, and these private tech companies. And what do you think are the implications for that, that, that they were really a major part of writing this policy document in the UK? Well, I, I think it comes from a, a place of sort of fear and intimidation around technology. Uh, of the people who originally agreed to have these policies written. And so they think, well, let's have the experts write it for us. Why wouldn't you ask the experts? Of course, the experts happen to be representatives of for-profit organizations who would love to sell their products to a nation of schools. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there are some pretty obviously uh, serious ethical implications about having private for-profit organizations involved in public institutions, especially at the policy level, because that has um, such wide-reaching impact. But we see it on a smaller scale as well. Since, like I said, there's this huge problem with accessing resources and having enough funding, individual schools and districts are happy to partner with private organizations. For example, there are the Microsoft Showcase Schools, mm -hmm. where schools partner up with Microsoft and they get this fancy badge that shows that they're really into tech and they're offering computer science or these technical courses and every student has a laptop and on the surface i mean isn't that great isn't it great that the school can now afford what we just said was important for everyone to have and that the government in some situations isn't providing uh, but should students grow up exclusively with microsoft products should they only be ex you know exposed to microsoft products so that they go on as adults to only buy those products. Unfortunately, we, we live in a branded world too. Mm -hmm. So you could understand the reason why educators see this as an appropriate trade-off where it's better that students maybe see Microsoft as the number one brand because at least they'll have a laptop to use when they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it and we wouldn't be able to afford it. But yeah, it's, it's complicated. There are a lot of issues around it, absolutely. And again, this topic one question in itself we can talk about for hours. Sure. So what are some of the tips to help schools and teachers implement CS programs? I think thinking about capacity early on is really important. And so that's taking kind of a, a really serious in-depth look at what resources you have available to you. And that includes both the hardware and the software, you know, what kind of, do you have any laptops? Do you have desktops? Do any of them work? How many of them work? Where are they located? How's your Wi-Fi? But a lot of it's also your people capacity. Do you have a computer science teacher? Do you have an IT teacher? Do you have a, an art teacher who on the side does graphic design and therefore knows some things about digital products? Um, mm -hmm. So getting that sort of baseline understanding of what is available to you then tells you what you need to do next um, that may be finding free training that may be applying to grants um, there are a lot of grants both from often from state governments um, for purchasing resources or for accessing professional development a lot of private organizations 
as well provide support or free training um, that aren't necessarily tightly linked to for-profit organizations. And of course, there are also the big companies that um, have different programs available for training or for offering free resources. I think part of the assessments or self-assessment project as well is thinking about the leadership, both in your school and your district. Are those people at this time seeing computer science as a priority or at least as something worthy of prioritizing? And if not, who's going to be the passionate leader, you know, the grassroots leader who's going to bring it to them and get them on board? Because mm -hmm. that's going to be huge because those people are the ones that are going to sign off on the grant application. They're the ones who are going to have some say in the scheduling of the school day and of what courses are offered and who's being hired in future years. Yeah, engaging the community is a big part of this. Part of the reason computer science is important as a subject is because work and life are becoming more and more digitalized and we're using more and more digital resources and systems to engage in different types of work. And that means that workplaces around you, which you wouldn't normally think of as technical or as computer science organizations, can actually be great resources for schools. So you may not have Google in your backyard, but you're going to have a bank and they're going to mm -hmm. do wire transfers and have a website and they'll probably have an app and they probably would love to partner with their local schools to provide some sort of educational program about banking and computer science. You know, I think reaching out to the community and finding these partnerships, they could be with individuals such as computer scientists or people who use computers in a sort of complex way as part of their work, or they could be organizations like like banks or um, yeah, graphic design I mentioned before. There are lots of organizations that I think are happy to work with their local community and those partnerships are gonna be really important for schools, um, especially those who are low resource. So partnerships in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. Because as you said before, partnering with another school or college to take courses uh, interchangeably with those organizations, but now what you're saying is to bring in experts from, from, from your community, which is not, I mean, not only is it a great resource in terms of expertise on teaching computer science, but it is also a really, really inspiring thing for, for students to see someone who's working in that industry, not one of their teachers, but someone different whose job is to be uh, doing what they're, what they're teaching and to have a diversity. Um, and that is actually, also a great way to show diversity in that in the type of work they do in computer science and the type of diversity and the type of people who do that work, mm -hmm. which would be really, really fantastic. And I'm sure so many college students, even in university students who are studying computer science would be very happy to come and, uh, and do a little bit of teaching possibly. So there's a lot of very creative partnerships out there. And what about this, the school and teachers, how can they, bring more of the students who wouldn't necessarily be signing up for that course. What would you recommend in trying to diversify at the school level? Yeah, I think in the, in the US as an example, we have to remember there's more to computer science than AP computer science. It's okay to create your own courses or to use curriculum, curriculum packages out there other than AP, especially as a, a great way to get students interested you know, at their own level in the subject before moving on to something that's perhaps more college level. So I think a big part 
of it. Um, and again, this is the struggle with capacity. If you don't have an AP computer science teacher, do you have someone who could <laughs> create their own curriculum? But you might do, you might be surprised. Um, it's offering an introductory course that is a bit easier. Uh, I know AP computer science principles was designed in that way. So perhaps sort of changing up the name to make it a bit more approachable. And a lot of it is sort of advertising. It's talking to students, and this depends again on the structure of your school and sort of the relationship you have as a teacher, but it's talking to students and saying, hey, I think you'd be really interested in this course. And not only mm -hmm. saying it to the students who are boys or who are already doing well in math, um, and perhaps even specifically targeting students who are struggling in other subjects, but you think, yeah, maybe building robots would be something they would do well at. And maybe mm -hmm. they love tinkering with computers all the time. Perhaps if they could get credit for that, that would really benefit them. Uh, so I think thinking outside the box of who sort of deserves to take computer science, not seeing it as a, mm -hmm. an extracurricular or fun time, which sometimes happens, uh, and also finding ways to plug students who otherwise wouldn't be interested into it. And a lot of it's going to be relationship based. Mm. It's saying to the girls, you know, I, I've seen your work and I think you would do really well in this class. I think you should mm -hmm. do well. And bring some of your girlfriends too. That's really good. No, that's fantastic. It, very often it is that very personal tap on the shoulder that, uh, that really brings the message home uh, to a student. And rather than trying to reach everyone, which is important as well, but it, that personal message really does change people's lives. Uh, I know that your lab does a lot of work in terms of courses that you put out for teachers. Is that something that any teacher can sign up for and that would be helpful? Yeah, so we offer a couple different MOOCs at the moment, in addition to our grant-funded research programs. If you go to our website for the MIT Teaching Systems Lab, you'll see which MOOCs we currently have going. Those have a lot of people enrolled at the moment, the ones who are going live, but we also have ones that you could join sort of asynchronously. They have really active forums with a lot of uh, great educators and educational leaders participating. So yeah, they're a really great community. We also occasionally do recruit for our research projects, you know, as the funding comes and goes. So if you go to the website and sign up for a newsletter, that's usually where we announce opportunities for people to, to join various fellowships or um, collaborations, research projects, et cetera. Great, no, that's really good. And, and also for younger students from a different lab at MIT is the Scratch that people can play around with um, as a beginning computer science experience uh, a lot of children like to start with scratch so um, that's also a great great program and you have a lot of great resources for teachers as well as the mit app inventor that's another one that's quite popular um, if you're teaching young students how to create their own apps great oh that's really good thank you so before we end i want to ask you for any recommendations books articles movies anything that you think it's helpful and inspiring in this, uh, on this topic. What would you recommend? Yeah, so the book I'd recommend is it a computer science book. And like a lot of things in education, um, it's, not, it's not about specific subjects. It's really about the greater uh, society and social inequality. Um, and that's something I'm really passionate about and interested in ever since I did my first degree in sociology way back when. So the book that actually really got me interested in sociology, which led to my work in education, 
and in computer science education specifically. It's called Ain't No Making It, and it's by Jay McLeod. It's a fantastic book and ethnography of two different groups of teen boys living in a housing project, and it's just a really great exploration of essentially social inequality and uh, replication of social inequality over generations and the impact of poverty, gender and race on um, these communities, which then has huge implications for what happens in the classroom and vice versa. So I think it's a great foundation read for understanding, um, especially low resource neighborhoods, you know, what's going on there and the, the struggles that people face in sort of breaking out those situations. Great. Well, thank you very much. And thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your insights and a lot of really great knowledge and resources. So thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.